Welcome to In Good Faith. I'm producer Peter Ellison. And before we get going today, here's a quick message from today's guest, Hana Sharif, about her upcoming production of A Christmas Carol. If you find yourself by any chance in the St. Louis region, you can join us at the Repertory Theater of St. Louis between November 18th and December 30th to experience this great story for yourself. Thanks for listening. What I find fuels me as a director is when I see the family forming, that you start to see like, oh no, we're actually creating something that is powerful and whether you know it or not, or whether you believe it or not, in some ways divine. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. This week I spoke with Hannah Sharif, the Augustine Family Artistic Director for the Repertory Theater of St. Louis. In a career that now spans two decades, she's been a director, playwright, and producer in Baltimore, Boston, Hartford, and Houston. Hannah holds a BA from Spelman College and an MFA from the University of Houston and is a founding member of the Black Theater Commons, the BTC, and serves on the board of directors for the Theater Communications Group and the Sprott Foundation. She's also the mother to two young daughters. Well, we're talking, of all things, about Charles Dickens. Yes. <laughs> about The Christmas Carol, written, I think it was 1843, so pretty close to 180 years ago. And before we get to that, though, I wanted to ask about your personal faith background. How does that fit into your life? I was definitely raised in a faith tradition. Um, I identify as a Sunni Muslim. Mm. I was raised in a very diverse, religiously diverse neighborhood. I was raised by parents who also had converted to Islam. So my father was raised Catholic and my mother was raised Southern Baptist. And they both found their way as college students to study world religions and really fell in love with some of the rituals of Islam. The benefit of growing up in the household that I grew up in was that my parents were passionate about the idea of there being a guiding force that had created everything and everyone. And that no matter what your spiritual or religious background was, that ultimately we were all serving the same God, that same energy. And that my parents who are academics and people who have dedicated their lives to serving God through serving humanity, um, really instilled that in us and encouraged us to question and to have, you know, rigorous ideas. And so, you know, on the same shelf in our library in our home, there was the Quran and the Book of Mormon and several different versions of the Bible. And we read them. We read from them. We discussed the scriptures and the surahs and where there was alignment and where things diverged. And we were encouraged to have um, the Torah. We were encouraged to really challenge and question so that we could understand and find our own connection to that higher power. And for me, um, I loved 
conversations with my friends, the interface conversations were my favorite. As a teenager growing up, I had, again, a very religiously diverse group of friends. And so we actually started going with each other to each other's religious uh, meetings, so to speak. So I would go to the synagogue and I would go to the Catholic church and I would go to, you know, these different um, uh, religious services and then bring my friends to Juma with me. And we would have these like really wonderful conversations about how our faith practices align. It was beautiful to see prayer in action in so many different bodies and in so many different languages. And it just affirmed to me again and again, the more I um, experience life and engagement and discourse with people who have different rituals of serving God than I do, it, it just reaffirms to me that God is speaking to all of us in the language that we understand and that we're all being called to that oneness. Boy, it seems like you were raised to be the moderator for the interfaith discussion (laughs) with your friends, that you were the perfect person. (laughs) It also seems like if you're visiting and going with friends like that to different congregations, uh, you you could take up a whole Friday, Saturday, and Sunday doing all of that. Indeed, and and sometimes did, yeah. (laughs) It seems to me that you had definitely a sense of God and that God spoke to people, as you said, in a language they they would comprehend or understand. At what point did God become a reality to you or was there some personal connection not just like i know about this but mm-hmm. i'm connected to this this is this is part of me i i actually think that i actually can't remember a time where i did not feel like i had my own personal relationship with god i will also say that so much of my work as an artist i came to art as a writer first And when people ask me about my artistry, I said, whenever I had questions about the world, I would write my way to the answer. Mm. Right. And so I would, I would, I would journal, I would ask, I would write to God, right. I would ask these questions. And so I found art and storytelling as a powerful tool to understand the world and to understand humanity. But it was always kind of rooted in my personal understanding of God. And my relationship with God was, you know, my earliest memories of myself in thinking about religion was that I love the rituals of of Salat. I love the rituals of prayer, Mm. but they were rituals. The real connection to God was not actually, for me, found in in ritualistic prayer, but in the quiet moments of centered convening, when I would ask a question and feel like I received the answer in peace, the answer in clarity. And I also really feel like my life has been, whenever I would find myself in real times of like crisis or challenge, I would find myself calling on on God and the angels, right? I was both emotionally connected, but also intellectually enamored with faith. And you felt that you got answers, it sounds like. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how did you perceive those? You know, I think that the answers for me were less about like hearing a voice and more about a clearing of fog. Ah. Clarity, right? Yeah. So if you're being torn between this and that and this and that and this and that, and you're asking for 
clarity and for guidance, the fog clears and the way forward becomes very, very front facing. And so that to me was where and how I received those answers. It was less, you know, a voice speaking in my head, this is what you should do, and more a clearing of the way so that the path forward became almost inevitable. With your background, it's not as surprising as you might think to say, here is a Black Muslim woman doing an annual production of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. So how did you get connected with The Christmas Carol and doing this as a tradition, a yearly tradition? Yeah. So when I joined the regional theater, so when I started my career, I actually uh, was founder and artistic director of a small company called Nasir Productions that uh, was a scrappy theater company that I started with a bunch of friends from college. And we were really creating the work and, and telling the stories that moved us. And I ran that company for um, five or six years. And then I remember waking up and going, okay, we're, we're growing and we're getting bigger and stronger, but we all trained as artists, not as administrators and producers. And that I knew that there were, there were tips and rules to the game that the multi-million dollar theaters knew that I didn't. And so I said that I wanted to go work at a large regional theater um, to steal the master's tools, to go in and learn as much as I could so that when I came out and went back to my small scrappy theater company, we'd be bigger, stronger, faster. Where I ended up, intending to be there for one year, but staying for nine, was Hartford Stage in Hartford, Connecticut. And Hartford Stage was one of those regional theaters who had this annual holiday tradition of producing a production of A Christmas Carol. I've always been also a huge fan of literature. So I I love Dickens' work. I love Jane Austen's work. So I was very familiar with A Christmas Carol. I had read it many, many times. Of course, had seen the adaptations on television. I'd seen productions of it as a child growing up in Houston, Texas. And probably um, the Muppets, too. I, of course, the Muppets <laughs> Christmas Carol is a must-see every holiday season. But this was the first time that I got to understand the show from the inside as a producer. What I found so powerful, this adaptation of the show, so the adaptation uh, is one that Michael Wilson is adapter on the on this this particular adaptation of Charles Dickens' work. I found the first time I saw Christmas Carol, the production, his, his this adaptation, the production riveted me. It dealt with so much more than just a sweet tale of redemption. I found myself really moved by this fundamental understanding that as long as there's breath in your body, you are not beyond redemption. I found myself moved by this idea that reflecting on your past and understanding how you have evolved into the person you are is really the root of how you can evolve into the person you desire to be. That healing is part of the redemption. What I found really myself really profoundly moved by is the idea that if you can raise your head above the personal pain that sometimes we carry on our bodies like like that backpacks, right? That the universe and the community and the society you're in, there's actually waiting to embrace you. That Scrooge saw a threat everywhere because he lived in a mindset of that. And when his mindset shifted, the threats, the foes became friends. The world was brighter and the infinite possibility 
existed for the first time or, or for the first time in a very long time for him. And that story was so profoundly um, articulated in the Hartford stage production of Christmas Carol. The other thing that I found myself falling in love with was that it was a tradition that every year families would come back every single year with their with their little ones to see the show that there were families who came who had kids who graduated and were in college and they still when they came home it was like we're going to see christmas carol again because it was part of how the family it was one of the traditions that the family built around this holiday season around this the this spirit of giving and redemption and joy and love as someone who loves tradition and ritual i was intrigued by that It invites us, this story invites us to our highest selves. And that is part of why I do the work that I do. Every time I am in the process of telling stories or I'm in the process of building a season and building engagement activities around the place that we put on stage, for me, art is about, is a tool to help transform society and community. And so I fell in love with Christmas Carol and the power of what I saw it do. You would see you know, literally tens of thousands of people come into the theater over the course of a month to have this very intimate and communal and and at the same time communal experience together. And so when I became artistic director at the Repertory Theater of St. Louis, one of the things I knew I wanted to bring because the rep had not had a holiday tradition. I knew I wanted to launch something that could be a longstanding tradition. I wanted to launch an experience that would be magical and beautiful and very much in line with this thread of what all of my work has been, which has been this continued exploration and and in some ways excavation of spirituality and this call to our full humanity. And I thought that this would be a way that I could do it and without it being a sleight of hand, with it really being the purpose and the intent. And also that using a story like Christmas Carol that is so beloved, that is 180 years old, a story that's been translated in dozens of languages, that has been adapted in every medium. A story stands the test of time because it speaks to something fundamentally true about ourselves. The fact that you do it year after year I like the idea of that ritual and really building something, a community that people feel like this is how I begin. I know it's Christmas when we do this together. Yes, I love that. But I'm really intrigued by the idea that you talk about that people from very diverse backgrounds. Yes, Christmas is in the title. Yes, Dickens came from England, was probably Anglican. And yet, I should fact check that because he could have been any number of things or none of those things. But he was part of that Christian tradition. But you see people from very diverse backgrounds coming and really gaining the same thing from the experience. Absolutely. Because, you know, it goes back to the fact that we're all fundamentally human. And no matter what your religious belief is, we all want the same things for ourselves and for our families right? We want to be able to have healthy, thriving lives. We want our children to be educated and happy and and good human beings. We want to live in a community and in a society that sees us. We want to be seen and acknowledged for the fullness of ourselves. There are so many characters in the play that you find a piece of yourself in, 
There's yes. a piece of yes. me in Mrs. Cratchit. There's a piece <laughs> of me in Belinda. There's a piece of me in Scrooge. And so when you find yourself being called into these characters, it really is this kind of elevating experience. Christmas Carol is also a, a, a play that has wonderful music and dance and vibrant costumes and all of the theater magic you can imagine. And so it really does transport you in a way that I, I find really compelling. And I would also offer that as I thought about producing this play, I really thought about a very new production of this adaptation. So my goal wasn't to replicate the production that happened in Hartford. My goal was really to say, what is the what is the reason to tell this story in the 21st century? And does that change year year to year? Do you are you altering things according to the situation of life at the time? I would say less, there are small tweaks that happen, you know, certainly anything that feels it's a, you know, contemporary nod, wink, wink to the audience, those things can, can evolve. But really this process is trying to decide how am I framing this story and why are we telling the story now? And also what does it mean to tell this story in the way that we've chosen to cast it and the way that we've chosen to design the story? You know, for me, I thought a lot about England as the great colonizers of the world in all the good and bad ways, <laughs> that <laughs> everything that's come with, with colonization. It also meant that London at this time was really the crossroads of the world because of spice trade, because of the transatlantic slave trade, because of the far reach of the exploration and the colonization of cultures around the world, what ended up happening is that London became the epicenter and the collision point of all of those things and all of those people. And so for me, as I started to think about how we were going to tell this story, I always found myself really excited by the idea as of this city and this moment being the intersection of the entire world as it met the Industrial Revolution. So we have a very diverse, ethnically diverse cast. And that was not done in colorblind casting. It was done with color conscious casting. This idea that who you are and your cultural history actually has meaning in this story at this time. And what that also means is that for the young children, you know, if you are a young Asian girl seeing this show and you see a tiny Tim that looks like you, or you see a townsperson, a caroler that looks like you, that you can write yourself into the reality that the story is sharing, that your humanity is as important and valid as anyone else on stage. And, and so we, we were able to kind of root the idea of how we were going to cast this play to really be a reflection of the community that we're in, the region we're in in St. Louis, but also of the world that we live in. And that we would be able to bring some of the colors and sounds and textures of these different cultures together and still root it very much in the period that uh, this Dickens classic was written for. Now, you grew up in college and, and your graduate work in theater, involved in theater. So this was obviously part of your life. In the world of Islam, so much famous poetry and beauty of language, especially in Arabic from Rumi and Khalil Gibran and on and on. Were you aware of any theatrical tradition within Islam or is that something that's been added as it's spread across the world? 
I, I think that there, you know, every culture has its own kind of theatrical tradition. We we tend to um, think of theater beginning with the Greeks, but actually ancient Kemetic societies also had their own theatrical traditions and language. I think less of it in terms of a tra- Islamic tradition and more in terms of like some of the traditions that have come out of Persia and Middle Eastern traditions. I think that theater is a really powerful tool for as we said, transformation, but also for revolution. And so what we see in contemporary Middle Eastern countries is theater being used very covertly to challenge oppressive regimes at times, to challenge and to encourage democracy and independence in many different cultures, not just Muslim countries. It is often a political tool being used in, in England and across the continent of Africa. I was just in Greece and it still very much is a tool for challenging the status quo. I actually think American theater tends to be sometimes the less overtly political theater. I I just love hearing your thoughts on that. So I'm wondering if you have a moment or two you can pull out of recent productions or of the play itself that you really love what happens that th- these are favorite moments for you in this play. Absolutely. So in our production, one of my favorite moments, um, so each of the, most people know that Scrooge is visited first by his former partner, Jacob Marley, who comes from essentially the depths of hell to give a warning to Scrooge that if he does not change his life, that he will be living in this internal misery And I will say that our production, I am one who believes that you lean heavily into the darkness so that the light can really breathe. And so the scene with Jacob Marley coming from hell with these ghosts that come with him to warn uh, Scrooge is is quite scary. (laughs) It's quite scary. But the young people have such tenacity to move through it. And then he he tells Scrooge, tonight you'll be visited by three spirits. And then in, in the production, each one of the, the Ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, they arrive and they arrive and the entire world transforms. The Ghost of Christmas present's arrival is one of my favorite moments in our production because of the Ghost of Christmas present it is has an, an energy and an, a bounty and a beauty and comes very much connected to the earth and the bloom of flowers. And what happens in that world with the magic of theater and the magic of the projections and the way you go from the dark coldness of London into what feels like the Garden of Eden Mm. is one of the the moments that takes my breath away every time I see it. Oh, that sounds beautiful. And and I have to say, it's not an interpretation I've seen in any production I've been to. Yes, wholly new. <laughs> so when you, when you have people come to this for the first time, are they just blown away because this was just, as they say, not your father's A Christmas Carol? I think that people are certainly surprised, but also, you know, I think that, what, so it's what's, what's really beautiful about art and about the role you get to have as creative on a show like this is that my goal is not to turn Christmas Carol into something, turn it on its head. 
Mm-hmm. It is to make it as relevant as possible in this moment and to reveal itself more fully to the audience that meets it. And so what I think people have, there, there's a surprise at the magic and the tricks and the wonder. There's a surprise sometimes at the casting and how seamlessly this world fits on all of the bodies and the shapes. And I remind people it's because it, it speaks to our humanity. Mm. And then there's a comfort that it's rooted in period, right? So you may have these textiles that are really interesting colors and shapes and things that hearken to, in some ways, other cultures, but they're fitted perfectly in the period. And so there is a sense of comfort. It's it's the story you know and love in a way you had never imagined it. So to be able to hold both of those truths, I think, is, is really the fine line that we've been working so diligently toward as a creative team and truly part of what makes me feel fulfilled about this work is to be able to tell this story that is fundamentally about our human redemption in a way that speaks across generations, across languages, across religions um, and allows everyone to find themselves in it. I find myself wishing that I could time travel Charles Dickens and watch his reaction (laughs) sitting in the audience. Wouldn't that be incredible? That would be fun. I'd love to take Charles Dickens out for a hot cocoa after the show to see. (laughs) Well, barring the fact that he shows up, what, what do you hope other people walk out of the theater and out of this production feeling or thinking? I hope that people walk out of the production feeling tremendous joy and gratitude for life, right? Some it's The day-to-day grind can somehow feel heavy and separate us from really the, the tremendous gift that life is. One of the things that if I've done my job well and everyone else, the hundred other people who work on this production have done our jobs well, then you walk out of that theater feeling such joy and affirmation of life and your humanity. And you walk out with the spirit of generosity and care. The, you know, the, the thing for me is like, after you see something that's like reminds you of your highest self, it doesn't just go away. You know, when you get in the car and go home, you're riding a little bit on that high, whether you know it or not for the next few days, right? There's a little bit more generosity. There's a little bit more um, benefit of the doubt given because you're living in a space where you believe in the abundance and the joy and the kindness of humanity. I think that that's what Dickens was trying to remind us of with this story, that this story, and for me, this idea, I tell my children, um, you know, if they're like, oh, I had a really bad day today. And I was like, you know what the best thing is when you wake up tomorrow you can make entirely different choices. Just like just like Ebenezer. Just like Ebenezer. <laughs> Years of penny pinching and the next day um, he turns his life around. And so there's that. I think that's a really powerful lesson for all ages to carry with us. You know, for some people, directing is like a job. <laughs> and for me, it is this art form is truly the way that I try and serve the creator. And so I walk into every process feeling a sense of responsibility. The first thing is building the company, building the ensemble. It's not just casting the actors. You know, I like to build family. 
So when the actors come in together to that first rehearsal, it feels like the first day of school. Nobody really knows anybody. <laughs> the first day of rehearsal, everyone's a little bit nervous. Everyone wants to be seen. It's like, I know what I'm doing. And I just try and break that from the beginning, right? I try and like, I try and guide us into the work by reminding us of what a joy it is that this is what we get to do for a living, <laughs> that we get to come together and tell these stories that help people see themselves more fully and then invite them into the process of sharing a little bit about themselves so that we bring our humanity first into the room. A big thank you to Hana Sharif for joining us today once again. If you happen to be in the St. Louis area between November 18th and December 30th of 2022, go see the Repertory Theater's production of A Christmas Carol. This episode was produced and edited by Peter Ellison. Additional editing and sound design done by Daniel Phillips. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. And if you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts. That helps spread the word. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at In Good Faith Podcast and on Twitter at In Good Faith Pod. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.